Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash GYJ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb. Hi, this is Professor Cecchi, and I'm a cardiologist involved by over 40 years in the diagnosis and management of patients with HCM, and I'm actually working in the Cardiomyopathy Referral Center, both in Florence and Milan. And welcome to this talk on improving collaborative care for HCM, tips and tricks from the multidisciplinary cardiology team. Joining me today are my colleagues, Professor Shihari Naidu, New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York, Westchester Medical Center, and Professor Daniel Swistel from Grossman School of Medicine at New York Langone Health. And we'll talk now about the importance of early diagnosis in HCM. This hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, I mean, we have both guidelines from uh, Europe and from the American Heart and American College uh, uh, in presented in 2020. And it's a disease uh, which is defined by the fact that uh, the wall thickness is greater than uh, 15 millimeters in one or more LV myocardial segments. And this can be measured by any imaging technique, echo, CMR, or computer tomography. Population of patients who have this uh, kind of thickness, then you have several kinds of diseases. Mostly are sarcomere, sarcomere protein genes that may be the leading cause of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, mostly MYBPC3 and MYH7, but also troponin uh, uh, mutations. But, uh, however, in about one-third of the patients, the uh, gene causes are not identified yet. Maybe and there are about 10% of patients who have different diseases, which may lead to different kinds of treatments, like pompe disease in neonates or, or infants, or like a cardiac amyloidosis or Fabry disease in uh, uh, adult and uh, elderly patients. The epidemiology of the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy shows that in uh, almost every country in the world, you may detect uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in about two patients per thousand examined. And most of them are without uh, symptoms, and above all, most of them are yet unidentified. And that's one of the purpose and questions that you know the cardiologists uh, have to address. So let's wonder what are the causes of the lack of a recognition and how can we diagnose on time both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients? So let me ask now, Professor Naidu, uh, what are the causes of misdiagnosis in your experience? And uh, what are the symptoms that uh, really lead to the diagnosis? Yeah, the challenge of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that most of the symptoms that patients may relate are essentially ca common cardiovascular symptoms that can relate to a number of diagnoses. And therefore, most cardiologists, when they look at a patient, they will obviously look at the uh, look to find the diseases that they believe are most common in their practice or at the age group that they're seeing. So if you look uh, at these patients, they oftentimes have exertional dyspnea or palpitations. They may have angina or chest pain. They may get lightheaded or they may have fatigue or, or, or as I mentioned, angina. And these are very common cardiovascular symptoms that can be related to a number of diseases. I think one of the challenges 
previously is that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was felt to be a very rare disease. So it's not the disease that would be on the tip of the tongue, so to speak, of, uh, of cardiovascular clinicians to think about when they first identify these patients. Uh, unfortunately, oftentimes they come up with other diagnoses such as asthma, which can be leading to uh, a young patient with dyspnea, or mitral valve prolapse, because you do see some mitral regurgitation in some of these patients. Many of them may be billed as anxiety or other mental health disorders because of the fact that these symptoms are oftentimes um, in younger people and can be very disconcerting to them. And so they come in very scared about their, about their symptoms. And rather than finding the true diagnosis with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, they label them as a, as a misdiagnosis of anxiety or even depression. And the vast majority though, over 50% uh, are oftentimes diagnosed with, a, with what we would call an innocent murmur, which essentially means that they couldn't find a diagnosis. And so that's one of the biggest challenges of these patients. They oftentimes will have those other diagnoses um, that, uh, that uh, ultimately over five to 10 years later are ultimately diagnosed with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Yeah, the really most important factors that will lead the clinician and, and cardiologist to suspect HCM. So oftentimes you might suspect hypertrophic cardiomyopathy based on a family history. So it is very important when you see an individual to gather a great family history uh, of all first group relatives to see whether there's any history of sudden cardiac death or premature death or heart failure symptoms in a patient who ultimately uh, has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or doesn't have any of the other common causes of cardiomyopathy, such as ischemic heart disease. That family history is very important, especially if there's a young individual who died suddenly at a young age, less than age 50. And obviously, if they do have a known history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, that's important to elicit. Then in addition to that, there's the occurrence of symptoms. As we already mentioned, there can be a variety of symptoms uh, from uh, chest pain to syncope to dizziness to uh, dyspnea on exertion. Many patients can be suspected or come to fruition based on a cardiac event. They may have angina, they may have an MI, uh, or a minimal troponin elevation, but the coronaries are normal. As we'll get on into, uh, many of these patients have uh, abnormal troponin elevations or BNP elevations. And uh, in the absence of other structural disease that they can notice, they may be billed as innocent or, or not related to a known diagnosis. So these events oftentimes trigger the initial thought about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Clearly patients with palpitations, ectopic beats or ventricular arrhythmia, especially if it's uh, ventricular tachycardia or atrial fibrillation in a patient that you may not notice has structural disease, deserves a, a second look or a third look to see really with other uh, modalities of imaging whether hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is there. There's also the characteristic murmur. So patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy will have a systolic ejection murmur that is dynamic and changes with, with different loading conditions that are characteristic of a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And a good clinician should really look at this. If you see a murmur, not build this as uh, solely innocent, but rather elicit whether there are the dynamic features of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And finally, this leads us to the electrocardiogram, which is the initial diagnostic tool in these patients. Well, good. Uh, Professor Swissel, do you think that, uh, I mean, uh, we may now know all the kinds of morphologic and phenotypic expression of the disease? I, th I think it's important to recognize that there are many different morphological versions that promote obstruction in outflow of, of the outflow tract, number one. And, and number two, there are certainly significant individuals who have symptoms, but without clear-cut uh, signs on diagnostic testing. And that is because, again, there needs to be a higher index of suspicion 
for the diagnosis of HCM than probably exists generally in the cardiologic world today. And, and again, to reiterate that all the different morphological versions, you know, basal hypertrophy, uh, different versions of systolic anterior motion of the anterior leaflet of the mitral valve, midventricular uh, obstructive, apical obstructive versions, all of these different versions have really led to increased complexity in diagnosis. And above all, I believe that we also, you can have actually get a, an, an end stage phase of the disease. When you have heart failure, you have some kind of uh, usually uh, mild dilatation, but above all, great dilatation of the left atrium and uh, with a lot of uh, fibrosis. And uh, as well as a kind of restrictive kind of cardiomyopathy with uh, bilateral usually dilatation and small left ventricle. And uh, this is important because I believe that uh, HCM is not only left ventricular hypertrophy because it comprises also the myocardial disarray, which was at the basis of the histological diagnosis uh, a long time ago, but also as well as fibrosis. And uh, as you mentioned, the mitral valve anomaly and papillary muscle. Uh, but above all, you know, there is uh, some striking medial hypertrophy of the intramural coronary arteries, which leads to some kind of hypoperfusion, which may even exist in non-hypertrophied areas. So after all, I believe that uh, we may now, you know, really recognize different types of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I believe that, uh, uh, Professor Swistel, uh, would you really be keen to describe the major, I mean, and the diverse morphologic expression and the major components. Over the course of the last few decades, because of improved diagnostic testing, I think we now recognize a much more diverse morphological situation in the myocardium that leads to obstruction and the symptoms and, and signs and symptoms of failure that are often associated with HCM. As an example, earlier descriptions of HCM included uh, anterior basal septal hypertrophy, otherwise known as a sigmoidal HCM. But more recently, we have seen more diffuse hypertrophy of not only the basal septum, but the mid-septum and even the apical septum. Hence, something that we refer to as the reverse curve version of HCM has become way more common, uh, certainly uh, in diagnosis than some of the other more prior versions. And of course, lastly, both midventricular and apical versions, which don't in general cause as much di diagnostic obstruction, but more signs and symptoms of heart failure that have become more easily recognized more recently. Now, uh once more, I mean, how important is obstruction in these patients? Well, obstruction is key because obstruction almost always is related to mitral insufficiency, which causes severe dilatation of the left atrial chamber and more signs of pulmonary hypertension, possibly later on. And all of these uh, problems uh, collude to uh, dramatically decrease the life expectancy of these patients. So now let's come to the main point. How can we improve diagnosis in these patients? You know, so uh, could you please uh, 
tell me if you what, what is your experience in diagnosis and above all in building up referral networks you know so that you can you know have uh, uh, referred patients to your multidisciplinary team i think i think one of the most important aspects of developing uh, a better um, regional diagnosis and therapies is to develop a team dedicated to the diagnosis, management, and therapy of these patients. This requires individuals who are expert in genetics, patient, uh, individuals who are expert in electrophysiology, uh, in, in, in cardiologists who are expert in pharmacologic therapies, and of course, lastly, like myself, surgical management. Uh, so all the, the development of the team approach is, is key to improving the referrals and better regional diagnosis. What Dr. Swistel is describing is the concept of the center of excellence with multiple components at a very high level to tackle all the areas of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that the patient may require from diagnosis to management. Um, that's a, one big part of the cycle. The other part of it really is getting referrals to recognize this disease and feed it into that referral network and, and to the center of excellence to get the outstanding outcomes that then feed back to the community. So there's two ways. One is the referrals uh, to have more knowledge and be able to do some of the uh, initial diagnostics at their local institution or office, but also as they see more of these patients to recognize the nuances on why they were missing these diagnoses for many, many years and hopefully get them younger and younger. I think this is partly why the phenotype has changed over, over time to a more younger reverse curvature patient population because the awareness is finally starting to increase and we're starting to notice these patients earlier. Once the referrals send the patients in and the patients do well through that multidisciplinary team that we're talking about, they go back to the office and, they, and those physicians get a positive reinforcement and realize that that cycle of referral and, and the patient coming back is a very positive cycle for the patients and for their practice as a whole. And over time, the referral network grows around the center of excellence. That's been my experience. Well, uh, thank you very much for, the, for your intervention and comments. Uh, so I would like to close this session saying that uh, in conclusion, HCM is not rare, it's among us, but it's often unrecognized. However, it's a complex disease with different clinical manifestation morphological manifestation and staged due to the fact that there is anyway some disease progression. But carefully evaluating the family history, the ECG and imaging uh, will allow cardiologists and clinicians to diagnose, and these are mandatory. And the referral to a multidisciplinary heart team is absolutely useful for the best clinical management of uh, these patients. Thank you for your attention. Professor Cecchi, I'm here again, and uh, in this second part, together with my colleagues, Professor Naidu and Professor Swistel, we shall talk about how to diagnose uh, HCM. And let me just introduce uh, the basic uh, instrument, which is the ECG. And ECG is the essential screening tool, but it is not really conclusive for diagnosis, as in uh, our experience, and in uh, other patients' experience, I mean, you, you may have up to 6% of patients with HGM, even with the huge hypertrophy, who show a normal ECG. So 
If you have symptoms, just go then to imaging because only one third of the patients, more or less, will have an abnormal ECG which is suggestive for HCM. So basically, I believe that uh, the imaging is clear-cut uh, uh, route to diagnosis. And I would ask Professor Naidu, Naidu to continue about how to use the echo and what we can expect from the echo. Yeah, the echo is an absolutely key and imperative part of the diagnostic modality, and it's also much more available to all cardiovascular practices. So that's why it provides a linchpin diagnostic tool in these patients. For one thing, it looks at morphology. So you'll look at areas of the heart to see maximal wall thickness. As we mentioned, it has to be more than 1.5 centimeters thick. Typically, you look at the basal septum, but you want to look at the mid-ventricle. You want to look at the apex. You want to see the lateral wall. You want to look at the morphology of the mitral valve. Are there abnormalities there? Is there mitral regurgitation in the characteristic distribution and trajectory? And you want to look at the mechanism of that mitral regurgitation as much as possible. Obviously, this has to do with imaging um, uh, and how, how uh, high fidelity it is, but you want to look at all these aspects. In addition, it tells you whether there's obstruction. So very clearly, it's very important to see whether there's obstructive physiology in these patients. Because as we mentioned, obstruction portends uh, prognosis and also guides the management decisions in these patients. So there's lots of different tricks to determine obstruction. We test them at resting conditions and then with Valsalva. But if that doesn't show a gradient and you're suspecting a gradient based on the clinical syndrome of the patient, you may have to move to the next level, which is doing an echo postprandial where they have uh, relatively dehydrated um, ventricle and resulting in more obstruction. Or you may do a stress echocardiogram prioritizing the uh, elicitation of obstruction over any ischemic findings you might see in these patients. But ultimately, echo is the, is the number one modality to look for both the morphology, the maximum wall thickness to, to clinch a diagnosis, and then to look for obstructive physiology and mechanism of mitral regurgitation. The importance of the obstruction in the subsequent follow-up of the patients is reflected by the results of the Italian registry of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. As you can see, uh, during the follow-up, uh, there was just a regular level of sudden death occurrence, which was basically 0.5% per year. But a number of patients would then subsequently uh, develop symptoms. Then these were the patients that went into heart failure and died for heart failure. Treating left ventricular optal flare obstruction is crucial for avoiding the the progression of the disease in most patients. Now then, uh, uh, using MRI and cardiomagnetic resonance with uh, with great with the um, contrast media. Sure. Uh, well, we do echo with with contrast media, especially to look at the apex and to get really good. Uh, uh, maximal wall thicknesses to get good endocardial definition. But MRI is, is also an increasingly utilized tool for a number of reasons and in, in many respects is complementary to the echo. It will look at areas that echo does not see very well, such as the apex or, uh, to look for apical aneurysms or the lateral wall. And it can also get much more fine um, cuts of the ventricle to get a much, much more precise maximal wall thickness to either rule in or rule out hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. MRI can also look for phenocopies and be suspicious for amyloid or other disorders that are uh, phenocopies of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but certainly distinct pathologies that require distinct therapy. And over time, we've also realized the scar burden as represented by late gadolinium enhancement has also become an important tool to determine prognosis. 
namely the incidence of sudden cardiac death increases with scar burden, and the incidence of heart failure and uh, diastolic dysfunction or burnt out HCM also increases at the extremes of scar burden as well. So for all these reasons, MRI is complementary, and most patients should get a, a cardiac MRI at a center of excellence to uh, uh, aid in the diagnosis and in the prognosis of, of these patients. Let me just add, what are two aspects of diagnostic testing that are important in subsequent surgical decision-making? One is the hemodynamic assessment, invasive cardiac catheterization. We do that in all patients uh, who we suspect might at some point require surgical management to get absolute and precise measurements of right ventricular pressures because a significant proportion of patients may have a pre-existing or existing pulmonary hypertension. This does not obviate decision-making for surgery, but is certainly necessary in the pre-surgical diagnostic testing. Secondly, as far as MRI is concerned, in patients with complex anatomy causing obstruction, MRI or 3D reconstruction of MRI imaging has become very helpful in surgical planning for these patients as well. Both think that uh, we should also do a CAT uh, coronary angiography. If the patient is being considered for alcohol ablation, then it's important to look at the coronary arteries to see if they even have uh, uh, septal perforators that go to the target myocardium that would allow alcohol ablation uh, in those patients. In addition, the right heart cath is very helpful in understanding really how debilitated the patient is. is if their index is less than two, or even uh, in some cases very extremely low, 1.2 to 1.4, then it is important for the surgeon to know that, or for all of us to know that a lot of their symptoms may be due to profound diastolic dysfunction or a confluence of all their problems, including pulmonary hypertension, mitral regurgitation, and obstructive physiology. That's very important as you try to figure out how to treat these patients and give expectations on the patient on how their prognosis may improve, or in some cases not improve and may have to move to other things such as heart transplantation. Yes, certainly uh, the degree of diastolic dysfunction, which is quite severe in almost all of these patients, at least the ones who are ultimately referred for a surgical management, can be uh, most important to know preoperatively. As I said earlier, this does not obviate surgical management, but is key part of information to be aware of when planning surgical management. What about genetic testing? Would you do in everybody? I do believe that genetic testing should be offered and done in all patients. As you saw in previous uh, uh, discussion, uh, the genetic positivity rate and VUS rate is not as high as we would like. It's generally on the order of 50 to 60%, but it, it can be higher in certain types of phenotypes, such as the reverse curvature, and lower in the older age sigmoidal septum type of patients. That being said, it does a number of factors. One is it'll clarify the diagnosis. You may have pathogenic mutations for HCM, but you also may find pathogenic mutations for non-HCM phenocopy diseases that require other therapy. It can also help in what's called cascade screening. If you have a positive test, you can utilize that to exclude the disease in some offspring of your patients. In terms of prognosis, we do know that patients who have a sarcomere mutation tend to have a worse prognosis. Patients who even have a VUS, a variant of undetermined significance, also have a worse prognosis than patients who have no mutation identified. So this is a work in progress, and over time we're going to learn more as we have larger registries, such as the SHARE registry, uh, showing how these patients do with a variety of genotypes. But I do believe that it should be done in all patients, and the information that is gleaned from genetic testing is absolutely vital.
Well, I can say that in conclusion that, uh, I mean, HCM, early recognition and multidisciplinary evaluation and management is crucial. And above all, you know, re-obstruction is an important risk factor that should be carefully evaluated and then possibly treated. Hello, this is again Professor Cecchi. And in this third part of this activity, together with my colleagues, Professor Naidu and Professor Swissel, we will talk now how to best manage hypertrophic adenomyopathy patients. And actually, we need to evaluate uh, the clinical spectrum, so the stages and, above all, the profile of the patients himself. So, Professor Naido, uh, in your team-based strategies and approaches to management of patients, I mean, uh, how do you evaluate this patient and then how do you decide the treatment? Yeah, so there's, a, there's many different paths that patients may take with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, especially as we raise awareness and start seeing these patients earlier in their life when they're asymptomatic. These patients may have a benign course, and they may have a benign course for many years before progressing into one of these other buckets. If you, but however, some patients will be asymptomatic and have sudden cardiac death, and these patients need to be, need to be prevented with, uh, with an implantable defibrillator. For the patients with, hyper, with heart failure, you really need to determine if they're obstructive or non-obstructive. And I'll also add, there's also the burnt out stage or the end stage HCM with a dilated cardiomyopathy, or, or oftentimes they're not dilated, but, but certainly hypokinetic globally. The distinction of obstruction is very important, as we alluded to earlier, because these patients avail themselves of a variety of drugs, negative iotropic drugs, including novel pharmacotherapy, to try to improve prognosis and improve the entire cardiovascular state. If those fail, these patients move on to alcohol ablation or surgical myectomy, depending on a variety of factors and whether, they're quali whether they qualify for each uh, and whether they require one or the other. In many cases, one of these procedures may be preferable to the other based on their morphology uh, of, of the mitral valve and the obstruction itself. The non-obstructive patients can be very difficult because these patients typically present with uh, uh, diastolic heart failure congestion and a lot of fatigue, and they may trigger atrial fibrillation in a large component as well. That leads us to the last segment here. The arrhythmias can be in obstructive or non-obstructive patients. You can have VT, but you can also have atrial fibrillation. And, in, and increasingly, as these, as these patients are aging and living with, with or without obstruction, whether they have subproduction therapy or not, Oftentimes, the syndrome will move on to a stage of diastolic dysfunction and atrial fibrillation, which patients can be very debilitated from as well. For patients with atrial fibrillation, of course, they require anticoagulation to prevent stroke, but they also may require RF ablation to uh, mitigate the incidence and frequency of atrial fibrillation and improve symptoms. And this may also require a variety of drugs to control the arrhythmia as well. So taken together, there's so many different paths that patients may take, and it's important to understand the typical paths that patients with non-obstructive or obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy take and the modalities of treating these patients to mitigate risk. And what are, Professor Naidu, again, the pharmacological agents that we can use and are now currently used in these patients? Right, so the current management uh, uh, for obstructive physiology is primarily related to beta blocker use as you, uh, in, in these patients. In some patients, they will require calcium channel blockers, especially those who have hypertension as well, and they may be on combination therapies. In general, ACE inhibitors and ARBs are oftentimes not utilized in obstructive physiology, although there's some evidence in some populations that they may improve diastolic dysfunction, although that is still uh, not, uh, not definitive. 
Again, many patients need oral anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. In patients who fail beta blockers or calcium blockers and continue to have symptoms of obstruction, you might use disopyramide to alleviate obstruction further. It also has the added benefit of preventing atrial fibrillation recurrence in patients with concomitant hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy and atrial fibrillation. For other arrhythmias, you may use amiodarone, uh, especially in older patients. In the young patients, we tend not to uh, uh, require that medication because of the long-term sequela. Uh, and in some patients, we will use natalol and other medications that can minimize the side effect profile of beta blockers. And uh, coming instead to the selection of patients for ICD treatment, what would you uh, follow at this point? The decision to place an ICD is one of the most fundamental and important decisions for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patient. So we spend a lot of time discussing this with each patient on an annual basis or as new clinical uh, aspects of their disease manifest themselves. There are two ways to look at whether a patient needs an ICD. There's the HCM risk SCD calculator from the ESC. In the calculator, they look at the age of the patient, the maximal wall thickness, um, how big the left atrium is, the maximal gradient, the family history of sudden death, non-sustained BT, and any unexplained syncope to arrive at a score and risk over five years. The other way to look at it from the United States is to look at whether the patient had a major event, a sustained cardiac arrest or VT, which would automatically require an ICD. If they didn't have that, then we look at a number of major risk factors, such as an apical aneurysm, whether they have a low EF, unexplained syncope, massive LVH, or a family history of sudden cardiac death. These would require an ICD as a class 2A indication. Anything short of that is essentially a class 2B or anything even less than that would not require an ICD. So some of these modifiers that might push you over the edge and require an ICD including, include the presence of non-sustained VT or whether there's extensive scar on MRI imaging as represented by LGE or late gadolinium enhancement. But importantly, it's important to understand that patients with HCM, whether they're symptomatic or not, have this as a risk factor. And so even if they're asymptomatic or young or certainly just have the genotype with only mild phenotype, these patients need to be evaluated for their risk of sudden cardiac arrest. It's not just the patients who are the most symptomatic or the most thickening of the heart who have this as a factor. Another important part is that as patients age, the risk tends to go lower for sudden cardiac arrest. So some of this has to do a lot with the age of the patient as the ESC calculator looks at. I might, I might add uh, parenthetically that it does become a point of uh, controversy occasionally whether patients who are scheduled for uh, either septal ablative therapy or surgical myectomy, whether they still would require an ICD uh, before, during, or after such uh, interventions. I think that's a little bit controversial, but the current recommendation is still that patients who fulfill the requirements for an ICD without consideration for their sub subsequent invasive therapy would still require that ICD placement regardless of subsequent in, uh, invasive therapies. Well, actually, this comes to the point, you know, what is the effect of myectomy? Does myectomy has an effect over survival and uh, prevention of sudden death in comparison with non-operated people? Swistel, could you please uh, comment on that? Well, this has been really one of the most gratifying aspects of a treatment of obstruction in patients with HCM. Patients who do undergo uh, a successful 
uh, surgical management for obstruction. And, and one would have to define that by a resolution of both mitral insufficiency and resolution of uh, 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 basal uh, gradients, outflow tract gradients. Uh, so if you can, uh, uh, just uh, if you can uh, acquire both of these successful uh, therapeutic uh, issues, then the long-term prognosis of these patients really uh, matches that of the general population in a quite gratifying manner. And how do you choose between septal myectomy and alcohol ablation? I would ask this uh, to both of you. you know, we tend to look at the anatomy, see so how symptomatic they are, where is the obstruction, is there concomitant mitral or coronary abnormalities? In general, all patients can get a myectomy with work done potentially to the mitral valve or the coronaries as needed. But those patients who have disease solely confined to the basal septum can oftentimes have an alcohol ablation if they have sufficient coronary anatomy. So the key really is what else is going on with the heart and whether and which procedure will give you a 90 to 95% you know, disease-free or event-free survival over the next five to 10 years. And that's how we look at it. In general, older patients, those with comorbidities and limited expected lifespan, more sedentary, lower gradients and lower thickness, preferentially the sigmoidal septum, oftentimes get funneled to alcohol ablation at expert centers. I think the key uh, in making this decision is evaluation by individuals who are adept at identifying the very fine points of what is causing obstruction. As we have been speaking during this uh, um, course, uh, there are a variety of uh, morphologic uh, variants that, that co collude to uh, uh, create obstruction. In, in, in the simplest form, where uh, basal septal hypertrophy is the key component, then alcohol septal ablation with the right coronary anatomy is extremely successful. I would also importantly add that there had been evidence that surgical myectomy that is performed after an unsuccessful alcohol ablation dramatically increases the risk of the subsequent surgical therapy. I personally have not found this to be true. Uh, I, I have found that uh, surgical myectomy in cases of failed alcohol septal ablation is still a viable and extremely successful procedure. And I believe now we can uh, go on and talk about novel, novel surgical and medical management options. And uh, I would start uh, with uh, Dr. Swistel, you know, uh, saying that, you know, somehow you may even encounter patients that have really not the criteria to diagnose hypertrophic adenomyopathy. They may have uh, septal thickness lower than 15 millimeters, but however, they may develop severe symptoms and gradients and mitral regurgitation. So what, what would you do? And, you know, why is this happening? Exactly so. Uh, we have seen increasing numbers of patients who, in fact, uh, don't have septal hypertrophy to any degree whatsoever. And so we consider these patients outflow tract obstruction without septal hypertrophy. And again, as we have been speaking, there are a variety of morphologic changes to the mitral valve apparatus that collude to cause obstruction without necessarily any significant or very mild degrees of septal hypertrophy. So this definitively requires some sort of management for the uh, mitral valve anus apparatus. 
So what are the techniques that, uh, that are standard and that sometimes are, can be changed in order to relieve the obstruction and the mitral regurgitation above all? Most of these patients have at least some minor degree of septal hypertrophy. So a septal myectomy is always part of the procedure in extremely rare instances where there is no septal hypertrophy at all. Those numbers are quite small. So uh, a, a mild or small septal myectomy in conjunction with secondary cortal uh, resection, in conjunction with residual leaflet excision, or in conjunction with mobilization of the anterolateral papillary muscle. These are all part of the toolbox that uh, surgeons uh, should have at their disposal to deal with these complex problems. And what about the robotic surgery? To date, robotic approaches have been relatively anecdotal. This requires access either through the left atrium or access through the ascending aorta, but I believe ongoing research is certainly moving in that direction and may come to great, great successes in the near future. Well, now let's talk a little bit about uh, novelties in medical treatment. And we have now the first in class of myosin modulators, which is Mavacantem, which has been recently approved by FDA. Please, Professor Naidu, could you please comment on that? These inhibitors essentially work on the sarcomere and decrease the cross-bridging, which ultimately decreases the contractility and reduces the ejection fraction ever so slightly, normalizing it, but also improving diastolic dysfunction and has some role in energetics and potentially angina. So because they work only in the cardiac myosin uh, uh, um, itself in the sarcomere, there's really little in the way of side effects in the non-cardiac areas, bringing significant hope to these patients that there are alternatives to the traditional medications prior to or in con conjunction with septal reduction therapies as well. And uh, what are the results of the studies uh, that have been published recently and have led to the approval of this drug? There's two main trials that have been published now. The first one, the Explorer trial, was, was in patients with NYHA class 2 to 3 heart failure, primarily class 2, but the results were quite impressive at 30 weeks using Mavicamptin versus placebo. The resting alpha tract ob uh, obstruction was markedly reduced, as well as the Valsalva or provocable obstruction. And importantly, we see secondary signs of uh, reduced stress or, uh, in the heart, as we see as pro-BNP was rapidly decreased and maintained during the course of therapy. We also see that high sensitivity of troponin was also decreased. And what about the extension to the, of the explorer trial? Did they maintain the same results? Yeah, we have seen from Explorer LT, which was recently presented, that at 84 weeks, there was sustained results. So this is good uh, evidence that if you continue the medication, we do see that the obstruction and the heart failure symptoms seem to be improving. Yeah, the Valor study was presented earlier as well, uh, more recently. And this was a very important study because uh, unlike the Explorer trial, these are more symptomatic patients. These were typically class 3 NYHA patients or those patients who were already being slated for septal reduction therapy. So that means that they were more symptomatic and, and potentially could benefit more and obviate the need for septal reduction therapy. And randomizing these patients to Mavicamptin versus placebo over the course of the trial showed a remarkable almost 80% reduction in the need or eligibility for septal reduction therapy by trial's end. Uh, so because of that, I think Mavicamptin is now being used in lieu of septal reduction therapy or as a 
uh, a way to minimize some of the traditional medications and try to get the benefit without having to move to sub reduction therapy. And currently what we're trying to figure out is who moves on to sub reduction therapy, who still needs traditional medical therapy, and who would be ideal candidates for Mavicamptin going forward. I think this is a wonderful time, and I think over the past 60 years we've seen that as awareness has improved and the different types of therapies have improved, namely the ICD, myectomy and alcohol ablation, heart transplantation, and a small subset of patients, we now see that these patients are doing much better. Uh, from initial reports of 3 to 6% mortality per year to 2% mortality per year. However, now in the modern era, we now have mortality rates of 0.5%, 0.6%, and these mirror are in many cases are the same or even lower than what you'd see in the general U.S. population, probably because they're being monitored by cardiovascular professionals as centers of excellence even more uh, frequently. And now we're looking into the future to see, well, can we improve this even further? It's been quite gratifying to see these novel surgical techniques greatly improve uh, the life prognosis of these patients in terms of both their their uh, lifespan and also their quality of life. Uh, moreover, I think as time progresses, there will be advances in gene therapies, number one. And number two, this relatively but significant number of individuals who suffer from apical or midventricular obstruction. These patients tend to have terrible progressive symptomatology that often culminates in heart transplantation. There are now novel surgical approaches to deal with these patients, and I think that especially in conjunction with the myosin inhibitors, that the combination of that pharmacologic therapy and novel surgical therapies for that subset of patients hopefully will obviate the completely the need for cardiac transplantation for this subset of patients. And to close and saying that really different drug and the left ventricular obstruction treatment, either by alcohol ablation or surgical myectomy, the implantation of ICD, heart transplant in the few patients that uh, needed are now well-established uh, uh, treatment uh, in the HCM management. However, these novel medical and surgical interventions are now available and will probably improve even better both quality of life and life expectancy in these patients. And I thank you very much, all Professor Swissel and Professor Naidu, of your very uh, important comments that you made. Thank you very much. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.